I want you to imagine that tonight you're not sitting in this lovely church building in Colerain, but you're standing in a courtroom before a judge in the city of Philippi. And that judge has just passed sentence upon you and you've been found guilty. The next thing you know, you're then transported to a local prison where you're handed over to the custody of that local jailer. The jailer then proceeds to strip you and beat you and then he puts you and leads you to your cell where you're going to remain for the rest of your sentence. As soon as you enter that cell, both your feet and your hands are shackled with chains. You're uncomfortable, you can't sit down, you can't sleep properly. It's only then that you begin to notice something else. That jailer, as he closes the door, there are no windows. And as soon as that door is closed shut, any light that you had in that cell is now extinguished. You're there in total darkness. You think you're alone, but very quickly you notice you're not alone because you feel something running along your feet. You think it might be a rat, you think it might be a mouse, but you can't be sure because your eyes haven't yet adjusted to it. A couple of days later, that jailer returns to your cell. He opens the door. He hands you some food. He hands you some water. But those things are of little interest to you. Because what you're really after is that momentary rush of fresh air that greets you as he opens that door. But the hardest thing to cope with in all of this is the knowledge that you've done absolutely nothing wrong. You've been placed in these horrible conditions for simply telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder tonight, if that was our reality, how would we react to it? Would we cry about it? Would we complain about it? If nothing else, I would hope that we would at least be praying about it. Let me ask you this, would anybody here tonight be singing praises unto the Lord and thanking the Lord for putting in those circumstances? I don't think too many of us would. And if you come to the Word of God and you study the life of Paul... And in Acts chapter 16 and the verse 25, we read that Paul and Silas, they find themselves in similar circumstances and yet they're singing praises unto the Lord. Acts 16 verse 25, and at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. So you have Paul tonight, he's in a prison cell, denied of his basic rights, his human freedom, and he's suffering unjustly at the hands of men and yet Paul never says a bad word about the Lord. And such behavior, it epitomizes Paul's life. Because you study his life, you read through his letters, and I cannot find on one occasion where Paul shows discontentment toward the Lord. And if Paul were alive today, Paul would be the exception to the rule. You look around us and society tonight, and the world we live in, true contentment is a very rare thing. Society tonight is marked with discontentment. There's a great sense of entitlement. And a simple example of that, which I hope will illustrate my point right at the beginning, is this. I'm going to take you to the workplace. Or at least this was the case whenever I was working. Because you're sitting having lunch. Everything's fine. The chat's okay. But then the boss leaves. And that's when all of the complaints start. I'm not getting paid enough. I'm underappreciated. You know what? This place wouldn't survive if I wasn't here. And they don't see it. See, all of those things, they're focused on the negative rather than the positive. Isn't it great I have a job? Isn't it great that I can support my family? Isn't it great I have enough money to live? But discontentment tonight is not something that we can solely associate with the ungodly. 
Because many Christians, and myself, I include myself in this always top of the list, myself, we're discontent. And there's discontentment for many reasons. We look at our own situations. We compare it to other Christians around us. And you'll see Christians, and they'll have new outfits every week. They have a new car. They're going on holidays all the time. They have a lovely, fancy house. And immediately your mind, what do you think? I deserve that. I need that thing. That's not fair. I work harder than they do. Discontentment as well with respect to church. I wish my church was like that church down the road. I wish my church was more social. I wish my church was less social. I wish my church was more focused on the youth. I wish it was more focused on the seniors. The preacher every week, he's too deep. I can't understand what he's saying. The preacher's too light. It's too simple. I want something deeper. But what about discontentment as well with something else, with our children? Anyone who has children, you will know that feeling. You look around the church and every other child in that church, they're sitting like little angels and you're able to listen to the service. Why can't my children sit like that? Why do they have to struggle every single week in church? And I get nothing out of it. Keep bringing your children to church, by the way. It doesn't bother the person in the pulpit. Or it shouldn't bother them. But in all of those things, all of that discontentment, what are we doing? We are ultimately showing discontentment toward the Lord. Dissatisfied with those circumstances that the Lord has placed us in. And that is an awful place for any Christian to be today. And Paul here, he speaks in this passage about his own circumstances. And particularly I want to draw your attention to verse 11. Because he says here, not that I speak in respect of want. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And you know what I believe if we had more of this type of an attitude in Christianity, being content with whatever we have, we'd be a lot happier Christians, we'd be a lot more effective Christians for the Lord. And tonight, really, that's what I want to focus upon. The thought, the theme tonight of this Bible study really is this. It's the need to strive for contentment. The need to strive for contentment. And taking that as a subject tonight, I have three very simple thoughts that I want to leave with you. My first thought tonight comes in the form of a question. We ask ourselves tonight, what does it mean to be content? We'll read again what Paul says in verse 11. He says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. And that Greek word content that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 4, it's the only time it's used in, in the entire New Testament. And you study that word and you look back at its meaning and it's a word that speaks of one who is self-sufficient. And therefore you slot that into that verse and you read it that way. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be self-sufficient. And you take the word self-sufficient at face value tonight and you might be inclined to ask the question, well, what's Paul saying here? Is he saying that he's self-sufficient, that he doesn't need any help from the Lord? The answer, of course, is no. Not because I say it's no, it's the word of God that says no. You go to other passages of scripture and Paul confesses time and time again to the very opposite thing. I think tonight particularly of what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. He's talking about the ministry. And he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves. And here you have it, but our sufficiency is of God. And in that verse, and in many verses like it, 
we have the theme of the scriptures. God alone is truly self-sufficient. So what does Paul mean here, going back to Philippians chapter 4, what does he mean then by this statement about being content? Well, he's simply saying that because of the grace that he's received at the hands of the Lord, his contentment is external of, or is independent, sorry, of his external circumstances. God's grace had enabled Paul to be contented with whatever he had because his contentment was inward. It was in Paul's heart that he was a contented Christian. And the obvious question then to ask tonight from that is what does it mean? What does it look like to be content? Well, I often think in order to answer those sorts of questions, we need to first study what it doesn't mean. So I have two thoughts on that. What does it not mean to be content? Well, it doesn't mean that you are void of any feeling or emotion. That's the first thought. You're not void of any feeling or emotion. And I make that thought tonight because whenever Paul wrote the epistle here to the church at Philippi, there were a group of philosophers going around at that time called the Stoics. And the Stoics, their basic philosophy was this. You want to be content. You need to eliminate all emotion and all feeling and desire from your life. And it's something that these individuals, they took great pride in. It doesn't matter what trial, it doesn't matter what affliction we face because it doesn't affect us. It doesn't bother us. We don't feel it. We don't feel any pain by our circumstances. That was their mentality. Tonight we might describe those individuals in 2024 as those who would grin and bear it. Those who have that stiff upper lip mentality. And yet tonight that is not what it means to be content. Christ in Luke chapter 9, he's speaking to believers there, and he gives the exhortation in Luke chapter 9 and in other places in the other Gospels, he says we are to take up our crosses daily. Christ, as he hung on that cross, and as Christ suffered in unimaginable ways for our sin, and we can't even enter into that, we can't understand the suffering he ever experienced, but in making the statement here tonight that we're to take up our crosses daily, what Christ is saying is this. If we are to live for him, if we are to serve him, then we need to feel and we need to experience suffering. And because of that, contentment doesn't mean that you're void of feeling or emotion. But there's something else that contentment isn't. Contentment doesn't mean tonight that you just sit and say nothing. And what I mean by that is there are those who think that if you are going to be content, then you just need to put on a front And yes, I'm really struggling with this. I'm struggling with that situation. But you know what? I'm not going to tell anyone about it. I'm not going to speak to a minister about it or an elder or anybody else who can help you. And even worse than that, I'm not going to speak to God about it. Of course, God knows everything, doesn't he? But I'm not going to speak to God about it. I'm really struggling, Lord. I'm getting it tight at the moment, but I just need to accept it. I just need to get on with it. Everybody's struggling. I don't want to be complaining. You know what, there's a big difference tonight between one who complains and one who brings their complaints to the Lord. You take that word to complain. It's a word that means to murmur. It means to be dissatisfied. But if you bring your complaints to the Lord, what you're doing is you're expressing grief. You're expressing your pain about something in your life. And that is something that the Lord exhorts the believer to do time and time again in the word of God. Think tonight of what he says in Psalm 62 and verse 7. He says, And God is my salvation and my glory. 
the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, ye people, pour out your hearts before him. You think of what Peter says, those familiar words, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. So we're not to complain, we're not to murmur against God, but he does command that we seek him out in times of difficulty. Because it's not wrong tonight to come to the Lord in prayer and to ask him to remove you from that difficult situation. Lord, take that trial out of my life. And I say this tonight because maybe there is somebody here and you are struggling with something. And you're getting it so tight at the moment, so difficult. The Lord is telling you tonight to bring it to him. What better way than dealing with difficulty in your life than praying to the Lord about it? So, somewhat discussing tonight what contentment isn't. What is contentment? Well, the definition I'm going to give you is not my own. But as I read this definition, I thought, you know what, this is a great definition. If not better than what I would be able to give myself. And therefore, why would I change it? If it's not broken, you don't fix it, isn't that right? So contentment tonight is this. It's an inward, a quiet, and a gracious frame of heart which willingly submits to and embraces God's wise and gracious plan. I'll give you it again. Contentment is an inward, quiet, and gracious frame of heart which willingly submits to and embraces God's wise and gracious plan. In simple terms, what Paul is saying here through this is that contentment is independent of external circumstances. It's an inner state of peace, an inner state of satisfaction. It's being satisfied with whatever we have in life, whether we have much, whether we have little. And it's never to be seen as those who complain or who say, I deserve that. Not complaining when things don't go the way we want them to go. Because that's what a discontented Christian does. You know what I need to say at this point, and I'm not standing here tonight in any way excluding myself, because I, as I said already, I'm top of this list. Well, I thought to myself, you know what, this would be a great word for Korean tonight. They already need to hear this word, because no, that's the, never my motivation. If I'm honest tonight, before you, I have struggled so much with parts of this message. Because contentment is something that I feel I lack more than most people. And the Lord's really challenged me. And every time I read this passage, he challenges me again about my lack of contentment. And if I were to pick a verse, if I were to pick a passage to preach on tonight, these would be the last verses that I would ever want to pick. But when the Lord puts a message upon your heart, it doesn't matter what you think, you need to preach the word. You need to preach what the Lord gives you. And often he gives you that word because he knows you need that word. The preacher needs the word. The congregation needs the word. See, if anyone had a right to complain, it was Paul. Roman prison, unsure of how long he'd live for, devoid of freedom, little in the way of money, and yet somehow he is content. Again, if I'm honest tonight, I I struggle with that as well. Struggle to understand it. Yes, I believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God. Can understand the theology behind that, but you take that from a human perspective, and you put yourself tonight in Paul's shoes I don't know if I'd be able to be as Paul was here. But I believe Paul could in some way come to terms with his circumstances because he understood that his circumstances wouldn't be changed by external things. And what I mean by that is, and I'll give you an example, 
What happens when you're sad? Well, when you're sad, if somebody cares for you, they'll come along and they'll try to tell a joke, they'll make you laugh, they'll bring you chocolates, they'll bring you flowers, and they'll make you happy for a while, but it doesn't take away those difficulties you're feeling because the last stop, the chocolates are eaten, the flowers die, but the difficulties are still there. True spiritual contentment tonight is a matter of the heart. It's a product of God's grace. And it is on the issue of contentment that I believe many Christians, myself included, we feel. So that's my first thought. What does it mean to be content? But the second thing I want you to see, and we find it in verse 11, is this. That contentment is something that we can learn. Something to be learned. And Paul testifies to that in verse 11. He says, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And again, you read the words. And they suggest here that there was a time in Paul's life that he didn't know how to be content. That's what it means to learn something. You go back to your childhood, you learn how to ride a bike, you learn how to swim. It's something you didn't know how to do before and you had to learn that. And contentment, you take that tonight, it is something that is not natural to man. You look at Adam and Eve, they're the perfect example. Paradise, perfection, everything around them. Everything they ever could have wanted, and yet over time they still become discontent with what they had. And Paul's no different because he's not naturally content, he had to learn it. And that learning, it didn't involve as many people will do today. What do you do? You go onto the internet, you look up some 14 point plan to living the Christian contented life. Paul sat under one of the finest scholars of his day, Gamaliel. Paul describes himself as an Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was an intelligent man. And even after Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, he didn't wake up the next morning and suddenly say to himself, you know what, I have perfect contentment now. I'm saved. No, Paul had to learn contentment from God. And Paul learned contentment through sorrow in his life, through affliction in his life, and through many difficult experiences. If you turn with me tonight, just back a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and we'll read verses 24 down to 27. What you have here, of course, is just a list really of many of the things that Paul suffered in life. Is of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. What a list that is. You summarize that list and what Paul's saying is this, I've come to learn it. And I've learned this contentment by practice. Because that's what the word learned means back in Philippians chapter 4. It's learning something by practice. Notice the phrase Paul uses then in verse 12. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. He talks about being abased. He talks about abounding. 
And then he follows it with the words, and in all things I am instructed. And that word instructed, it's a word that means to be taught. That's, that's very obvious from that. But there's a further meaning to it also. Because it also means here to be initiated into a mystery. And in Paul's day, if a person wanted to enter a secret religion, they had to undergo an initiation process. And so what Paul's doing here is he's using language that's familiar to the people, that people would understand. And you know, that's so important as well for a preacher. To use language that people can understand, to get down to their level. Paul's saying he needed to be initiated into a mystery. And in that what he's doing, he's trying to portray that contentment was a mystery to him. He had to learn it. It was a mystery because he didn't know it before and he had to be initiated into it. I mean, can we not confess tonight that we are the same? Because true contentment is a mystery to the Christian. Can any of us tonight say that we have learned to be content? And again, I'm not standing here tonight thinking, you know what, I've learned to be content. Me and Paul, we're content, but the rest of you aren't content. No, that's not what I'm saying. I wish I was content, but I'm not. How did Paul learn to be content? I have two thoughts. He learned to be content tonight by firstly having a proper perspective. And you see that in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your cur me has flourished again. Wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. So in the past here, Paul had been sent gifts. People had helped him out. But it seems by these words, the initial words here, that those gifts had stopped for a period of time but you read on in verse 10 and he says they have flourished again they have revived again and other gifts come and what Paul is doing here is he's expressing his thankfulness for the people's generosity but he's also wanting the people to realize that yes I'm thankful for it but you know what this contentment it's not upon the outward things because look what he goes on to say. He says, wherein you were all so careful, but you lacked opportunity. What does Paul mean by that phrase, you lacked opportunity? Some have suggested Paul makes a statement simply to highlight that he understood why the gifts hadn't come. And Paul could have came at this a totally different way. Paul could have said, well, why haven't you sent something sooner? I don't care if it's dangerous. Look what I've done for you. Look how much I've helped you. What sort of an attitude would that have been? It would have been entitlement. I deserve something. I don't deserve to be here. It's not fair. You should do something for me. But such words never come out of Paul's mouth. And why is that? Because Paul realized something greater. Paul realized that without Christ, Paul was absolutely nothing. He was absolutely nothing. Without Christ, Paul was nothing but a sinner and one who deserved eternal hell. And Paul had gotten something that he did not deserve, which is eternal life in heaven. And whenever you think about it that way, and we apply it then to our own lives, and we think about those little complaints that we all bring. I talk to my wife, she tells me I complain all the time. But should not cause us to ask ourselves the question tonight. Look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, who am I? Who am I tonight? And what do I deserve but hell because I'm a sinner? And yet what do I have? I have something I don't deserve. I have eternal life in heaven because of Christ. And when you understand that, what else matters in life? Truly, what else matters if you have Christ? So he learned to be content by having a proper perspective, but also he learned to be content by trusting in the sovereignty of God. 
Because having said all I said tonight, I don't want you to think that Paul, he's sitting here and he's saying, you know what, I don't have a need. I'm really happy in my circumstances. It's great to be in prison, isn't it? Paul doesn't say that. No, what he does do is this. He realizes that despite his circumstances, God was in control of every affair of his life. This is the same man, the same Paul who wrote the book of Romans. He wrote those familiar words, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. How quickly do we throw those words out? Someone comes along in trouble and you say, brother, sister, don't worry. God works out all things for his good. And he does. But do we believe that with all of our heart? It's easy to say that whenever things are going well. But do we have the same sentiment when things are going not so well? Is God still good? And again, I'm not sure we always do that. But if we believe in the sovereignty of God tonight, if we believe that everything happens in life according to the will of God, then this is something that we need to believe in, even in the worst moments of your life. When you think there's no way out, you come to the Lord You look at who the Lord is. You look at how he's holy, how he's just, how he is good, all of those things. And whenever you see that in Christ, that will be the most comfort you'll ever have in your life. Because when you understand who God is, you understand what he's done for you, that is the most encouraging thing you can have in your life. To know who Christ is. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God. Because Paul knew that God knew everything about him. He knew his circumstances. He knew his needs at the time. And he also knew that God could have taken him out of his circumstances, but he didn't. And Paul was content with it. Paul learned to take those times of abounding, the times of abasing plenty and little. And he did it without complaining or grumbling or panicking. We all panic, don't we, when things go away. What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? What does Paul say? Look at verse 19. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's not a case that I want this thing or I want that thing. And if I pray to it, God's going to supply it. No, Paul's saying he'll give you you and I the things we need. Things we actually need, not the things that we want. So what does it mean to be content? It's something we can be learned. But thirdly and finally, I want you to see then that true contentment is found in Christ. It's something we've touched upon throughout the message, but I want to focus on it just for a few moments tonight as we come to a close. The source of Paul's contentment, and the source of all of our contentment tonight, it's Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul testifies to in verse 13, because he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And again, that word strengtheneth, it's a very interesting word. It means to enable someone or to empower them. And the idea behind the word is that Christ gives us the power. He literally infuses power into us. And again, it's not something he says off the cuff. Coming and writing to that church, that'll be something that will encourage them. No, it was his continual experience in life. You do a little Bible study of that word, and you'll find that Paul uses it time and time again throughout his letters. Writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, it's the word strengthened. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 17, he says, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And when Paul uses the word strengtheneth here in Philippians 4, he does it in a way to 
explain to us tonight that it's something that was continual in his life. I can do all things through Christ but strengthen with me and who does continually strengthen me. And sadly to those tonight who will take verse 13 and they'll take it to teach something it's never meant to teach. And they'll take verse 13 and they'll place the responsibility upon man, what man does. They'll preach a prosperity gospel. Look at this verse, it says all things. And therefore, if you believe it, then you'll receive it. But then they'll add the caveat, if God doesn't supply your wants, if he doesn't meet those needs, it's your fault. Because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't believe enough, you didn't pray hard enough. And that is utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. That's why it's so important when you come to a passage of scripture to always bear in mind the context in which you read a verse. People do it all the time. They come to a verse of scripture, they come to the Bible with their preconceptions and they'll cherry pick a verse out and then they'll shoehorn in their agenda rather than looking at the context and what it actually means. Philippians chapter 4 has nothing to do with fulfilling your heart's desires. It's Paul's testimony of God's grace and his help in trials and sufferings. You see, Paul's reason for verse 13 was to emphasize this, that his contentment could not be based upon man's inability. I'm only able to be content because of the grace and the strength that Christ continually gives me. He surely believed what John taught in John 15 verse 5, without me you can do nothing. And that's something every Christian needs to understand. We look to the world tonight for contentment, we're never going to find it. Because the world would have us to believe that contentment can be attained apart from Christ. And again, you just go back to the very beginning. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Because in effect, that's the lie that the devil told Eve. God doesn't want you to possess the knowledge, but you can have the knowledge. You deserve it, Eve, so take it. And whenever we start to think that way, we are guilty of sinning against God. It's an awful place to be. Believers tonight, we're to be better than that. We need to conduct ourselves in a manner that is contrary to the world in all things. And again, Paul, he gives us the advice in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights of the world. And therefore tonight, whether we have much in life or little in life, never forget that we have Christ. Because we have Christ, we don't need anything else. And as often as the case, that's an easy statement to make tonight. It's easy for me to make tonight. Um, there's no trial in my life. But the practical reality of that is so much more difficult. But if we're to be contented Christians, that's the place we need to get ourselves to. And how do we get to that place? It's by getting our focus off the things of the world, the materialistic things, getting our focus off what other people are doing, and simply focusing upon Christ and upon who Christ is and what he's promised to do for us in his word. We need to realize that we cannot do that in our own strength. We're fallen men at best. But we can pray to the Lord every single day. We have the privilege. We can pray every day to the Lord and ask him for the strength that we need. But ultimately tonight, we're only ever going to truly be content when we realize that God owes us nothing. We're entitled to nothing. And in giving us eternal life, we have so much more than anything that we deserve. And if we can adopt that sort of mentality, it's surely only going to be a good thing. 
It's going to completely transform our whole outlook in life. And it's going to transform our approach to serving the Lord. And therefore, why not pray it at that end tonight? That the Lord would do it for each of us. That he would take any of the discontentment that we all have and we're harboring in our hearts. And he would make us Christians who know what it is to experience true contentment. We have Christ and we have everything we need. Each of us have a testimony that reflects somewhat what Paul says in verse 11. And with this I'm finished. Because Paul is able to testify, not that I speak in respect of want. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And may God bless that word to your hearts tonight. May he challenge us through it. May he encourage us as well, because yes, there's a challenge, but there's also encouragement. Always encouragement when you talk about Christ. Study Christ. Study the Lord. Look at his attributes. Look at who he is. And that really will just bless and thrill your soul. But we'll come tonight to pray. We'll come to seek the Lord. Many things in your heart, no doubts. Um, of course, as mentioned, the Reverend Irwin I'm sure he would appreciate prayer. You have a gospel mission coming up as well. I know that's very much in your heart, so pray about that. Services on the Lord's Day as well, pray about that. And whatever else is on your heart, of course, just pray for that. I'll open the time of prayer just very briefly at your prayer meeting. So I'll, I'll leave most of the time for yourselves, but we'll just come to the Lord and we'll pray together. Our Father and our God, we just come into thy presence again in our Savior's name. And we thank thee, Lord, for the privilege of prayer tonight. We thank thee for the word of God. We thank thee for the challenge every time we open the word of God. We pray, Lord, tonight that something that has been said tonight will prick our hearts and stir up our consciences, Lord, that we will just get our desires focused upon thee, that everything in life will be focused and tunneled even towards serving Christ and making Christ the center of our life and to have contentment in that, knowing, Lord, that we have everything because we have Christ. And we pray tonight for this church. We thank, Lord, of the many different aspects of it. We Thank Lord of the gospel mission that is coming up. We think of the Reverend McRae. Help him as he would make preparations. May he preach with power and passion every night. May souls be saved. May people even now, Lord, be sowing that seed. And may they be having those conversations, inviting those people in that they love. And through that, Lord, may we hear of wonderful conversions, of souls being saved, of lives being transformed. We think of the Reverend Irwin too, Lord, in his sickness at this time. We pray you'll keep your hand upon him. You'll bless him. You'll be with him. You'll raise him to a measure of health and strength. We thank, Lord, also of the Lord's day and the opportunity to, to preach thy word. We pray for the one who would come here in the Lord's day, that you would give him a message from the Lord, that he would be that man who's on fire for the Lord, that it would be the word in season that they need again, Lord, and the people will know it is because it's come from thee. And we pray tonight, Lord, as we even wait on in thy presence, you'll give help, Lord. You'll take away the spirit of fear. We thank that the Bible reminds us that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we pray, Lord, that that will be our approach to the place of prayer tonight, that will not worry what anyone else is saying or how anyone says anything but Lord we'll just pour our hearts out before thee and we'll come to thee Lord broken over what is going on in our lives and so to that end Lord I pray you'll continue to bless us now you'll be with us you'll help us you'll pour out the spirit of prayer and of blessing continue with us Lord touch another one to pray for it's in Jesus name we'd ask those things amen